Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about science and medicine where we talk about the advantages of biotechnology and some of the ways it can help people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today's guest comes to us from New Haven, Connecticut, Yale University. Christine Latin is with us today for a couple reasons. And first, we're going to talk about the intriguing work that she does around animal stress and the ways that she's using modern imaging techniques to understand stress better and how it can help us understand stress in animals than relating that to human beings. And then we'll talk about what has happened to her recently. Uh, Because of her research, it's put her on the map and actually in the crosshairs of some rather malevolent efforts. And um, we want to talk about what this is like to be under that magnifying glass. And we'll talk about that in the second half of today. So, uh, hi, Dr. Latin. Hi. <laughs> yeah, hi. Thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of animal stress and your research. Can you tell me a little bit about the background and where you've studied and what you've studied? Sure. So I actually have a somewhat non-traditional career path for an academic scientist. As an undergraduate, I was actually a linguistics major and a biology minor. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and I actually never really thought about pursuing advanced degrees until after I'd been out of college for a while, and I saw that that was actually a a path that I might really enjoy, and I might be able to do some good work uh, if I pursued it. And um, so after college, I worked a number of different jobs, um, including, for a while, I actually worked as a translator in France, but I felt like something kept pulling me back to science. And that uh, happened partly because I was taking jobs where I was working with the public, working with kids, working with uh, wildlife. I spent a year working at an outdoor education center called Glen Helen, which is in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And middle school kids go there for several days to learn about natural history and ecology and the environment. And at Glen Helen, I worked with kids, and I also spent some time 
as an assistant at a raptor rehabilitation center that they have there, which is basically a hospital for injured birds of prey. And people would drop off, you know, hawks, owls, falcons that had been hit by cars, which had flown into power lines or into sewage treatment tanks, and I would help take care of them. When the birds would come in, their injuries would be too severe, and they would die, or we would have to euthanize them, because if, we, if they were released, they would starve to death. Um, but sometimes we would be able to help them get healed and, and release them, and that was when I first became interested both in birds and in stress, because one of the most fascinating things to me was how different different animals were, both within a species and across species. So just as an example, uh, red-tailed hawks, which are very common um, American bird of prey, when they would be brought into the raptor center for treatment, they would usually be very behaviorally calm, they would usually eat well, and they didn't seem to be at least on a behavioral level, uh, super bothered by being very close to human beings. Whereas another common uh, hawk species, uh, Cooper's hawks, they were actually just the opposite. They would spend most of the time that they were at the raptor center bouncing around their cages. They wouldn't eat well. We would try to put these cardboard fed protectors on them so that they wouldn't ruin their feathers, uh, which would make it harder for them to fly when they were released. And so I really became interested. So what, you know, what would make these red-tailed hawks resilient to this kind of captivity stress, and what would what was making the Cooper's hawks so sensitive? Uh, that was one of the, the areas I first really started getting interested in um, there. And then a few years later, I went back to uh, graduate school. I earned a master's degree at Eastern Kentucky University in biology. My master's research was about singing behavior in blue grosbeaks, and that was an entirely field-based project. I would record song in different contexts and see how uh, the grosbeaks responded to different kinds of songs. And stress came up again when I was doing that research because early in the breeding season, when I was doing my fieldwork, there was a really strong late frost in May, which is very unusual in Kentucky. And there was basically nothing green, no bugs, uh, when the when the grosbeaks were arriving from their, their migration uh, route. And they were not singing when they arrived. And my, behavior, my project was supposed to be on singing behavior. So that was, uh, that was, that was stressful for me. But, of, of course, also the, the birds were stressed by, by not having anything to eat. And, and they, were not, they were not breeding. Um, later, of course, you know, the weather started settling down. The grosbeaks started singing and breeding. But this experience really stuck with me. Um, and, and it really showed me how animals are exquisitely sensitive to their environments and made me want to better understand how and why stress helps animals to respond appropriately to their environments. So in the case of the grosbeaks, it, they really shouldn't start breeding until conditions improve. So that response was really helpful for them. And then there's other cases where stress can go from something that's helpful to something that's really harmful and can cause problems. And so that's why I studied stress in wild birds as a PhD student in biology at Tufts University. And that's what I'm still studying today as a postdoc at Yale. And most of my current work is focused on developing medical imaging techniques, uh, positron emission tomography and computed uh, tomography imaging to study the body and brain in songbirds. And these are commonly used technologies in humans, and they'll allow us to uh, study a lot of things in animals without actually having to euthanize them, which I think in some, some cases is really going to help us track different individuals over time and potentially 
allow for us to be able to do studies where we would, you know, scan a bird, look at receptor levels in the brain, and then release it back into the wild and track it over time, which I think is really an exciting, uh, would be an exciting step forward. Yeah, it was kind of funny that uh, I read about your situation. At the same time, I was at a conference um, where we were talking about, where one of the talks was about equine stress. Yeah, and then we don't think about it. We think, oh, it's a bird in the sky. You know, it must be pretty cool. You know, what what's there to worry about, right? And uh, equine stress is a really big deal that these social animals that sometimes are kept in solitary pens, how that bothers them. And the stress that they feel as they graze because their heads are down and inside in the grass and their eyes are always scanning around to watch for predators. Um, these ingrained behaviors and other stresses. And really, it's got to be an important part about evolution and actually the success of um, any animal lineage is this ability to respond to stress, right? I mean, how, how important is stress when we talk about animals? So certainly, uh, stress can be something that can uh, be both good and bad. And I think a lot of people hear the word, word stress, and they think, oh, stress is, stress is this negative thing. We don't, we don't want stress in our lives. But stress, actually, the, the, the physiological stress response, which has kind of two parts to it, it has the, the really fast fight-or-flight response, which involves, um, you know, your sympathetic nervous system and catecholamines like uh, norepinephrine or epinephrine, which uh, in the UK is called adrenaline. Adrenaline's a little bit more famous than than epinephrine and norepinephrine. Um, but um, there's the fight or flight response, which is really important in sort of helping us run away from things. And then there's also the uh, corticosteroid hormone response. Um, cortisol or corticosterone uh, being released, which depends a little bit on the species involved. And these corticosteroids are a little bit slower. Uh, they're not as, as fast as the, as the fight or flight response, but they are really important in helping the body to respond uh, to the stressors and prepare for any future stressors that an animal or a person might encounter. And these hormones, they do all kinds of different things. They help to mobilize uh, energy sources in the body and make, make uh, more energy available through gluconeogenesis. They uh, can shut down reproduction, like in the case of the blue grosbeaks, which is really helpful when you're not in, a, um, when you're not in an environment that is going to be able to support reproduction. Um, they can, you know, have different kinds of effects on the immune response, which in some cases, you know, enhance the immune response, in other cases, suppress the immune response. But all of these responses are really, really important in being able to successfully cope with stressors that we encounter. And it's only really when these stressors last for too long and animals or people are, are not able to get away from these stressors or get relief from the stressors, and that can happen in different ways through you know, social connections, through exercise, and, you know, being able to actually kind of get away from the stressor. When you're not able to get relief from the stressors, then these hormones can actually start to have very negative effects on the body. There can also be negative effects on the brain. And, and that's when stress goes from being a good thing to a bad thing. And we don't actually understand as much about that transition from helpful stress to harmful stress as we might like. Um, which is part of the reason that that I study it. And reason is that you know at this point, stressors like climate change and habitat destruction affect pretty much most, if not all, animal species on the planet. 
And we don't really know what kinds of impacts that's having on a population level. So just as an example, if you build a road through a forest, some of the birds breeding there will abandon their nests in response to the traffic noise and the construction, and they'll, they'll stop breeding. And other birds uh, of the same species or perhaps other species might be able to cope with that noise and the traffic and successfully breed. And we don't really know what the hormonal and neurobiological differences are between the stress-resilient and the stress-sensitive birds, both on an individual and on a species level. Um, and and w- that means that we don't understand if there are negative effects that we might be having on wild animal populations when we put these kinds of selective pressures on those populations where we're uh, selecting for stress resilience. So, for example, you know, those stress-resilient animals you know, they might be better at, at coping with stress, but maybe they're not as good at learning or they might not have as much behavioral flexibility as some of the stress-sensitive animals. So these are really important questions that uh, I think the field is going to have to address moving forward. And it's something that I hope is going to be a major uh, focus of my research as I, as I uh, advance in my career. <laughs> well, someone who uh, previously studied linguistics, do you think that we can change fight or flight to fight or walk away? Because I, cause I've been in situations where I go, okay, fight or flight, I can't fly. Uh, you know, um, it just it seems like one of those things. But anyway, let's go back to the science. Um, <laughs> the, the things that you're studying when you're looking at these responses and you know when you, the adaptation that occurs within and all the issues you talked about, why is this important to think about in the broader context with respect to uh, maybe even translational work with across vertebrates or even to humans? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, there's actually quite a bit of research on stress resilience that is happening in in human populations because some of this variation that I was just talking about that we see in wild animals, we also see in human beings. So, you know, you can have two individuals undergo the same type of childhood trauma and one of the children might struggle in school with social relationships and they might end up having, um, you know, different kinds of psychological problems that have negative impacts on them for the rest of their life. Whereas another uh, child who undergoes the exact same traumatic experience might be able to bounce back from that and have, you know, what we would consider to be a pretty normal, happy life. Uh, so there's really actually, you know, in the in the uh, more kind of psychological um, and, and human uh, biomedical research, there's been quite a bit of focus on this recently and trying to look at what are some of the, you know, by taking blood samples and doing imaging studies, what are some of the um, kind of indicators of resilience that we see in these humans that seem to be resilient versus ones that seem to be sensitive. But, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're studying humans. You can't usually do a lot of uh, environmental manipulations and things like that. Um, And, um, you know, in certain cases, if you want to study receptors in the body or receptors in the brain, um, you, you can't necessarily do everything you need to do with just uh, blood samples and imaging work. You, you might actually need to, you know, euthanize the animal and look at some of those kinds of things. So that's that's partly why animal work is really important for understanding uh, resilience is because it allows you to ask questions that you wouldn't be able to ask in more kinds of uh, controlled ways that you wouldn't be able to do in human beings. Uh, and I do believe because of this um, 
I mean, this is an important question in wild animals. It's an important question in human beings. I think the study of stress resilience is one where biomedicine and ecology can actually learn a lot from each other. I think what we learn from humans can be usefully applied to wild animals and vice versa. So you're performing these experiments primarily on house sparrows, but how does that same research translate across other vertebrates? So the hormones that are involved in the stress response um, and and the hormones that I was talking about earlier, the, the corticosteroid hormones, they are found in all vertebrate animals from fish to reptiles and amphibians and birds to humans. And the neurobiological systems that I study like the dopamine system of the brain, are actually even found in invertebrates like insects. Um, there's been some really interesting research recently on um, dopamine and reward in, in honeybees. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, wild animals do show a wider range in hormonal, neurobiological, and behavioral responses to stress than domesticated lab animals, which in some ways actually makes them more like human beings. And I think that's all part of why uh, house sparrows can be a really useful uh, species to understand stress. So as models, you typically are using house sparrows, and you're using primarily some rather advanced imaging or human uh, imaging techniques that were intended for medical purposes. And so why did you pick that system, and what do you learn from the imaging? There are a few reasons I study house sparrows. We know, first of all, that domesticating animals for laboratory conditions can actually alter the stress response because the most stress-reactive individuals just won't breed in captivity. So you will lose that variation that exists in the population um, when you bring them into the lab and breed them in the lab. And so that basically means that lab rats and mice don't show the wide variation in physiology and behavior in response to stress that we see in wild animals and which we also see in humans. Uh, Another reason that I work with house sparrows is that they are actually uh, an introduced uh, invasive species in North America. And so, um, you know, they compete with native birds like eastern bluebirds for nesting sites. And that means that, um, you know, if if you need to do studies where you're removing them from the wild, there's no negative conservation impact of doing that. Also, because house sparrows have been introduced uh, all around the world, and they've actually, typically, they do pretty well. They've been introduced to Australia and Africa. They're spreading across uh, kind of Central Africa at this point. Um, We know that natural selection has favored uh, stress resilience in this species, where within the populations of sparrows, there appear to be individuals that are able to really thrive in completely new uh, and novel environments. And And so I think that makes them a very uh, interesting species as well. In terms of the imaging work that I'm doing, you know, anytime you're interested in understanding variation within a population, it becomes really useful to be able to track the same individuals over time. Um, And you can't do that if you have to euthanize those individuals to be able to study the brain. So, for example, one of the things that I'm really interested in doing with this technology going forward would be to be able to uh, capture wild birds, do some imaging of the brain to, you know, potentially do something like measure um, numbers of a particular kind of receptor and then uh, in the brain and then release them into the wild. And, you know, if, if, you, if, if they're exposed to different kinds of stressors in the wild, how does 
the, you know, the density of that receptor predict how well they're able to actually cope with the stressors that they would then encounter in the wild and how does that affect their ability to breed in response to those stressors uh, and those kinds of questions. And you, you cannot do that if you have to euthanize an animal to study its brain. You can't see how levels of receptor predict anything um, because you're done at that point with that animal. Uh, so I actually think that these technologies, uh, which really haven't been used very much in wild birds before, or, or really any wild species, uh, have the potential to really kind of transform the way that we do research on the brain in, in wild animals. And I think that's really, really exciting. There are some downsides to using PET and CT imaging as well. And, and the main one is actually cost. It's really, really expensive to do PET scans of, of humans or of, of animals. And that sort of limits the numbers of animals you can do. And you have to make sure that the, the research uh, facility that you're at actually has this million-dollar machine that can do the PET scans and they have the ability to make the radioactive tracers that you need um, because they have really short half-lives. Like one of the tracers that I use, has, it's a C11 tracer, but it has a 20-minute half-life. So basically 10 half-lives go by, there's, there's no more radioactivity that you can, that you can possibly measure. So that's, that's three and a half hours, that, and that, that's completely gone, which is great if you want to not expose an animal or a person to a lot of radiation, um, but it's, it, it means that you have a very short window of time when you can actually do the imaging work and get meaningful results. So there's a lot of technical challenges. There's a lot of expense involved in doing this imaging work. Um, but I think, you know, because it does have the ability, you know, it, it gives us this ability to kind of follow animals over time, have an animal kind of act as its own control uh, in different kinds of situations where you maybe expose them to some sort of standardized stressor where you could go on their territory and you could play predator calls or you could play control sounds or whatnot um, that really has the potential to help us understand stress resilience. So actually what you're doing are looking at correlations between either, um, you say receptors, but are you able to track the prevalence or density of specific biomolecules um, you know, receptors or whatever, or are you looking at metabolism? I mean, when you say you're using radioactive tracers, you know, how, what, what exactly are you looking at, at when you're developing these correlations with behavioral changes? For PET imaging, you can actually use differential equations. If you have, um, you need to have, this is, this gets into the weeds a little bit of, of how PET imaging works, but you can actually come up with fully quantitative measures of receptor numbers uh, in an animal, which is amazing to me, um, by using you know different kinds of things, you might have to take blood samples to be able to come up with that fully quantitative measure, so you actually know how much radio tracer is in the blood as well as in the brain um, and things like that. Another way to be able to do that, and and actually with sparrows, they're so small, I can't take I can't take a lot of blood samples from them, um, so I'm not able to use that approach. But another approach you can use is there are some. Uh, radio tracers, for example, there's one that I use quite a bit to look at the dopamine uh, system of the brain. And this radio tracer, which is called um, raclopride, C11 raclopride, is a D2 receptor uh, antagonist. It binds to D2 receptors in the brain. And we know there are, uh, is, is, are some parts of the brain where there are no D2 receptors. So we can actually use those 
parts of the brain as sort of a reference tissue. And we can kind of calculate the ratio of this radio tracer binding in the parts of the brain where there are a lot of receptors, like the striatum, and, and look at that ratio over the um, amount of radio tracer that's in the cerebellum, which doesn't have a lot of binding, using that as a reference tissue. And you can actually get a measure called binding potential, which is you know, a number that is fully quantitative. It's not a relative number. It's not a metabolite number. It's basically receptor receptor density. In a lot of ways, it's actually better than some of the ex vivo techniques that are commonly used that are not quite as quantitative, doing something like immunohistochemistry, for example, which is sort of semi-quantitative, this PET measure is actually very quantitative. And, and it also allows you to be able to look at how this particular measure can change over time. So you can you know, image the same animal multiple times and you can sort of look at them before you do some sort of experimental intervention and then afterwards, and you can see like, okay, well, before I did the intervention, they had this ne- this number of receptors. I gave them this intervention, and then they had this number of receptors. And and also, that's not something you can do if you have to take the brain out of animals. Yeah, and in, well, and how do you get the same sparrow back? It seems like that would be a pretty pretty tall order. I mean, they're small; they disappear pretty quick. It would seem. How do you know you're looking at the same one, or how do you find it? Yeah, so I think this is really something when you think about, okay, well, this is really cool to be able to image an animal and then release it back into the wild. But once you've you've put one of these animals through this this procedure, it becomes incredibly valuable. You have to be able to find this animal again because you really, really want to know what happens to this animal that you you put into your (laughs) million-dollar machine and you inject it with your very expensive radio tracer. So this is, I think this is the sort of complementary part of this research. And lucky for me, there have actually been a lot of people who have been working on developing very lightweight tracking devices that use, in some cases, RFID technology, radio frequency identification technology. Oh, so there's there's a company called Cellular Tracking Technologies that's actually in the process of developing these solar-powered um, little trackers that you can, you know, pretty easily. Um, attached to a, a small bird, they weigh half a gram, which is you know very very lightweight. Um, so we, you know we don't think that they're going to be affecting the bird's uh, mobility or their survival, um, but it would allow us to be able to to find them and and to track them over time, which is really important if you want to be able to study the same individual um, over time. Yeah, that's a really important part of this. Well, the other uh, thing that I'd like you to talk about briefly is. What were the oil experiments? And I know that there were, this was a really important part of your work because it talked about real ecological stresses that came from a man made source. And so, what was that research about? When I was a PhD student, um, Deepwater Horizon happened. And, you know, I had been doing some reading around that time, um, looking at, you know, how chemicals in the environment, pesticides, different kinds of uh, endocrine, endocrine disrupting chemicals like phthalates and PCBs, they can affect, um, you know, a lot of people think about endocrine disruption and they think about estrogen and they think about synthetic estrogens and they think about intersex frogs. And that's a really, that's a really big part of endocrine disruption. And those are really important studies that have been done. But a lot of chemicals in the environment also affect uh, an animal's ability to secrete 
corticosteroid hormones, which are, you know, the important kinds of hormones secreted during, during the stress response. And that has been relatively understudied, even though there have been some studies in the past that sort of suggested that the, the corticosteroid um, response is in some ways kind of exquisitely sensitive to being disrupted by chemicals. And there's, but so I, I started wondering, you know, okay, the, the animals in the Gulf of Mexico, they're being exposed to oil, which is a stressor and being able to survive oiling is, you know, that's an incredible stressor for a wild animal, mm-hmm. but it's also the, the oil itself is actually affecting their ability to mount the response. So in some ways, it's kind of a, a vicious cycle or, or maybe a, a better term would be like a double whammy where they need the, the hormones most but to respond to the oil, but the oil is actually keeping them from responding. So I applied for um, a fellowship from the Environmental Protection Agency called the STAR Fellowship, the Science to Achieve Results, uh, proposing to, to study this, uh, which you know had been pretty much understudied in a lot of wild animals using the house sparrows and I got, I got funding to do it. And so, and the way that I did it was that I, you know, had this, this crude oil that was Gulf of Mexico crude oil. Uh, it was weathered to sort of simulate the amount of weathering that it would receive in a natural environment. And a very, very small amount of it was mixed into the sparrows food. So I, you know, I didn't, I didn't force feed them the oil because I didn't want to have to handle them. And, you know, I thought that would actually the stress of, of being handled and, and fed by me was was something that would have been that would have interfered with the study. I mixed a tiny bit of it into their food to sort of s- simulate how animals in the Gulf would potentially have you know prey items that would be uh, you know partly covered with oil. And then I looked at their their stress response, you know, kind of before, during, and after they were exposed to the oil. And I did, you know, I looked at a lot of different uh, outcomes. I looked at body mass. I looked at a lot of different um, kind of blood chemistry parameters in the blood, like glucose levels and levels of different enzymes that can indicate liver damage um, and kidney damage. And I did not see any changes in those kinds of physiological measures with these low doses of oil. But I did see that the birds that had been exposed to a very small amount of oil in their food were not able to secrete uh, corticosterone and, and these hormones at the same level that animals who had been exposed to a control diet. And, you know, it, it was, it was a, a pretty robust effect. And, oh, and I also found that um, the oil exposure changed the numbers of receptors in certain, certain tissues as well. So not only was the oil affecting their ability to secrete the hormones, it was actually also affecting the the tissue response, so their body wasn't responding to the hormone in the same way as control animals. I suggested that the ability to mount the stress hormone response could be used as an indicator of oil exposure in wild animals. Since it has come out, it actually has been cited by researchers that are working down in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and looking at, you know, things like uh, wild dolphin carcasses uh, that have washed up and people looking at, you know, wild sea turtles and things like that. And they have used my study as evidence that some of the health problems and the deaths that they've seen of wild animals in the Gulf of Mexico were specifically due to oil exposure because they saw 
adrenal damage and other kinds of um, things similar to what I saw in the Spiros. Yeah, do you think that the EPA will be giving many awards in the future to study the effects of oil in the Gulf of Mexico? <laughs> oh, I know. It's, it's, it's very sad, actually. I think the EPA Star Fellows Program is, I think it's, I think it was on the chopping block, and I don't think it's going to exist anymore. You know, a lot of the work that I do is very basic science, but that work had direct conservation implications. And, and you know, for me, that was that was that felt really important and really meaningful. So I'm I'm sad that that program is going to be cut. Is a little bit of stress good? And do we see cases out there, and maybe even thinking about human populations, where there's not enough stress? And maybe other secondary effects that maybe the maybe the natural order of things is to have a little bit of a um, you know like a little bit of a bug in your ear and always some sort of stressor that leads to changes in hormone levels or whatever is that true or is there any evidence to support that? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually some really nice evidence from rodent uh, research that has I believe used rats where um, kind of early in life. Rats that were, um, you know, separated from their mothers and handled a little bit by researchers, which is a stressful experience for a rat pup, um, that those animals actually um, were some of the healthiest and best adapted animals, that the animals that had not experienced any stress at all uh, in early life, and the animals that had received really large amounts of handling were uh, less healthy than these than these rat pups that had experienced kind of you know, the Goldilocks amount of stress, just just the right amount of stress, um, which, yeah, I think is, is really interesting. And, and I think we see that to a certain extent in, human, in humans as well, that, you know, having to overcome a little bit of adversity, having to, to deal with a little bit of stress can, can be really helpful. Um, it's, it's just when, when that becomes too much it, it, that it becomes a problem. That's really interesting stuff. So it's, the question is, is, how do you know you're in the Goldilocks zone? Because I think I found mine, and mine is a unusually high. That I enjoy having, you know, a lot of deadlines and looming problems and things that are, you know, where it's always hitting the fan around me. But um, I know other people where they can't stand stress and they insulate themselves and insulate their kids from stress. And the kids grow up kind of soft and they, you know, don't really know how to do things and aren't really interested in anything. And it, it seems like you've got to have a burr under your saddle. Yeah, this, this, and that kind of gets back to some of what I was talking about in terms of individual variation, too, where I do think probably the Goldilocks amount of stress is different for different individuals. And, and that might depend on a lot of different things. It might depend on their brain chemistry and their hormone levels and their, you know, childhood upbringing and other kinds of experiences they've had um, that, that might sort of set what that, what that sweet spot is from, from one individual to another, which is, I think why it's really important to, to study these questions so that we can, so that we can actually know, like, you know, what amount of stress is good, what amount of stress is bad, and, and how does that vary and why does that vary? Um, we're speaking with Dr. Christine Latin, who's a postdoctoral researcher in the Radiology and Biomedical Imaging Center at Yale University. We'll be right back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Yeah, today's podcast is an extremely important one, especially for me and it was extremely difficult for me to do this interview for reasons you'll see. 
In the next segment, I intentionally bleep out the name of the activist organization. I don't want them to get any mention. You can guess who they are, and you just uh, Google Dr. Latin's name. You'll be able to figure it out pretty quickly. Most of all, I want to apologize for my emotional response to the situation. Two years ago, I was in a similar situation, and it was a dark time that permanently affected me and probably affects my entire career. When I listen to someone like Dr. Latin, there's nothing but empathy for her current experience. It's even getting me misty now. I mean, this is, this is bad stuff, folks. So help me fight back on her behalf. Share the podcast. Share the story. Uh, cover the web in stories of her work and about these attacks on science and reason. Share them on your favorite science websites. Um, write a story about it. Share the content on just about any Facebook page or any Twitter feed where you can put it. This all changes when we don't just say we stand up for science, but when we stand up for science. And it changes when we fight back. The good news is is that fighting back isn't fighting. It's not loud or violent or anything like that. It's sharing science. It's easy. Write a story about it. Record a little video. Make content. Share Dr. Latin's story. And if you don't want to do that, just share others' work. Share her work. Share this podcast. This is in our hands now. And as a scientific community, as a community of science enthusiasts, let's defend science simply by promoting science and scientists. Pretty easy stuff, right? Thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing Dr. Latin's story. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're talking with Dr. Christine Latin, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Radiology and Biomedical Imaging Center at Yale University. And she's spoke in the first part about the research that she does with in vivo imaging of animals to understand stress in the way in which that translates across different species, even to, an, even to humans. Uh, humans are animals, I sometimes forget. But her research, because of the, the nature of the research, has put her into a rather precarious position. Uh, she's caught the attention of and uh, they've kind of put her in the crosshairs here a little bit. And, you know, so, you know, uh, Dr. Latin, why do you hate animals so much? Yeah, that, that is something that I have been uh, accused of a lot, actually, over the past two or three months. Um, and, I mean, I, I, would, I would say, you know, I, I don't hate animals. I actually, you know, even house sparrows, a lot of people have said, well, you know, house sparrows, they're an invasive species. They kill you know, Eastern bluebirds, which are, you know, very cute and beloved. And, you know, I, I, house sparrows, even house sparrows, I think, you know, they are, they're very interesting animals. Their lives matter. Um, I would, you know, I, I would say that their lives are valuable and, you know, have, have dignity and, you know, as a species, they're worthy of, of respect. And any animal research that's out there has very strict guidelines and protocols that you have to abide by. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how they ensure the humane treatment of the animal subjects? Sure, yeah. I mean, this is it's really important that any time you're doing research on animals that you are thinking a lot about how to 
um, you know, reduce the numbers of animals that you're using, that you're thinking about how to minimize the distress and, and suffering that any animals might experience, um, and that you're doing, you know, everything that you're doing is, is done to abide by, you know, a set of principles that uh, researchers have, have set out and, and that those are appropriate for the species that you're working on. Um, and, you know, so that means that anytime I want to, to plan an experiment in birds, I have to, um, you know, basically write up a very uh, detailed protocol about what exactly I'm doing, why I'm doing it, um, you know, what are the, what are the um, potential places in the study where an animal might experience uh, pain or distress and how am I minimizing that pain and distress and, and then that uh, protocol has to be reviewed by an institutional animal care and use committee. And, and you know, they, the, the, the committees are, are, are very, very, uh, you know, they take their jobs very seriously. They go over the, the protocols in great detail and they will, they come back with questions and they say, well, why are you doing it this way? What about this other approach or the labs that we use, the imaging facilities, the animal rooms where the sparrows are housed are regularly inspected also by the USDA. Uh, there's a team of veterinarians uh, that, that um, track the animals and their health. Um, when I bring them into the lab, we actually routinely will treat them for parasites because wild birds have really high levels of parasites, and the vets help me do that. Um, and we, we really want to make sure that they stay in good health that they you know eat actually a, a wide variety of different foods. They get seeds. They get these kinds of like uh, little pellets that have all kinds of different vitamins in them. They get fresh fruits and vegetables on a weekly basis. And we monitor um, we monitor their behavior and their weight uh, over time to make sure that that they stay healthy because that's you know we want to make sure that they um, are in good health and and that they are not suffering uh, in, in, in the lab. But we, you know, we abide by all of the federal laws and regulations, and we also abide by, by state laws and regulations to make sure that the work that we're doing is, is, is good work and it's ethical work. Yeah, and I guess, you know, and it's important to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and play by the rules with respect to policy. But, you know, you yourself, you know, in your heart, you know, you're you got into this business because of an interest in animal welfare, and how do you have animals? How do you make things better for all animals by studying a few of them? And you know, how how do you reconcile that just with your own personal feelings? Yeah, I mean, you know, I will be very honest with you and tell you that the first time I had to kill a bird for my research, I um, I cried. <laughs> you know, it was it was very. Um, I don't. I don't like that. That is a part of my work. Um, I don't. I don't like having to euthanize animals. Um, but if you want to be able to study receptors in the brain and in the body, which I think is really important and really uh, is going to help us understand how to help these animals, as well as you know potentially have have important applications for humans. If you want to do that work, you you know you do have to euthanize animals. Um, and, and that's, you know, a big part of why as I've, you know, as a postdoc, I've actually tried to explore some of these in vivo, uh, technologies using, you know, pet imaging and CT imaging, um, you know, part, partly because I think the, the science 
has the potential to be transformed by these technologies and, and, and to really learn new kinds of things. Um, but also, yeah, because I think it would, it would be great to not have to uh, euthanize animals for some of this research. One of the ways that I, that I think about this um, is that, you know, on a, um, on a broad scale, in the big picture sense of things, the threats that animals are facing in the wild are, you know, if we think about wild birds in particular, they're really big threats and they're really real. Things like climate change, habitat destruction, um, you know, exposure to things like oil spills and pesticides and wind turbines and, you know, flying into to window glass that they're not able to see very well while they're migrating and, and flying around cities, being you know, attacked and eaten by people's outdoor cats. Like these are all things that are actually affecting bird populations in a measurable, noticeable way where thousands and thousands of birds die every year from these kinds of, uh, you know, stressors in their environments. And, you know, the numbers of birds that I have to euthanize to try to understand how stress works is really not having a major impact on a population level, even though obviously, you know, to that particular animal that I euthanized for my research, you know, that's, that's it. That's its one chance. So, you know, I, you know, I try to minimize the numbers of animals that I use in my work. I try to make sure that the research is really important. And I really try to focus on, on the big picture and think about, you know, on a population level, the real threats that animals are facing, you know, we have to understand how those how those stressors are affecting animals and so you know killing a few animals for a research study euthanizing a few animals for a research study um is i think i think is justified in this situation although i know not everyone agrees with that well what are some ways that you have been personally targeted and what are some of the uh you know stressors that you've had to face because of your research for me it started at the end of may with uh, posting an article about me on their website and also sending that out to their mailing list. And I found out because out of the blue, uh, I started getting emails and Facebook messages and tweets that were basically saying, you know, like you said, why do you hate animals and stop torturing birds? Um, And I understand that there are always going to be people out there who don't approve of any animal research under any circumstances. Um, But you know, I will say that one of the most frustrating one of the most frustrating aspects to me is how how much misleading and untrue information there is out there that that beta has put out about me, um, and and you know, to me that that that's been something that I've I found really um, in some ways most upsetting is is you know instead of saying well we don't like any animal research and here's somebody who does animal research they've they've you know tried to sort of justify their attacks on me by saying things like, you know, these experiments are cruel and they're wasteful because they're not applicable to humans or even other birds, which is not true. And it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of how biology works, honestly. Yeah, well, it's uh, the thing that's awful about this, and I've, I've been in your shoes, is you read this material that is absolutely false and the things they're saying about you are false. They're done maliciously to hurt you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you know. There's you. There's you know the legal 
avenues are complicated. The um, even just fighting back makes you look bad in a lot of ways, and it's really hard to be able to to push back. And how have you, you know, how have you dealt with this? And how have you personally? Well, so for, I guess maybe the first most important question is: is have you dealt with anything particularly in terms of threats or anything that really made you worry about your safety? Yeah. So I mean, other than the than the um, things that has posted to their their website and that they sent out to their mailing list. Um, this has been a really extensive campaign against me personally um, in that, like you said, yeah, there have been legal complaints that they've filed against me. Uh, they sent letters to my funding agencies. They, um, you know, actually in June I was at a conference in California and about 15 people showed up uh, at an outdoor poster presentation where I was trying to present some of my research and they uh, shouted at me and, um, you know, they were, I couldn't see them, but they were about, I guess, 15 feet away from where I was standing. And that was, uh, that was a pretty, that felt really bad. And it, it felt really, um, <laughs> definitely was having a fight or flight response to that situation. You know, it was, it was a really, uh, it, it was a really stressful it was a really stressful situation. And, and then, you know, it, it's, it's continued. I, I sort of hoped that it would, that, you know, I could maybe just sort of keep my head down and, and not respond to it. Um, you know, Yale, Yale university has been extremely supportive. They have, uh, I think they've, res- they've gotten a number of, you know, harassing emails and phone calls as, as well about this. I think many more than I have received personally, and they've been extremely supportive. So I just want to say that, um, but I've sort of been hoping, okay, well, I can maybe just kind of keep my head down, let Yale respond. Um, and, you know, and I, I do have, you know, I, I really care about transparency and openness in science. So all my work is uh, available on my on my website. I have a scientific Twitter page that I maintain where I, I post about my work. And so I thought, well, people can, people can go and they can find my work and they can, they can see that I'm doing good work and that I, you know, I'm not, I'm not torturing animals. Um, and, and, you know, I'm just going to let that sort of speak for itself, but, you know, it hasn't stopped. It's actually kind of intensified over the, over the summer. Um, a couple weeks ago, someone hung posters on, uh, all around Yale's campus about me, including in some buildings where I work. Uh, last week sent out a call on Twitter to harass me. Uh, they posted a video on Facebook, uh, about me that is actually completely misleading and completely false suggesting that you know there's a 3d printed plastic device that i use to hold the birds when they're uh being uh scanned under anesthesia for for pet scans or ct scans which last 30 minutes to an hour very short uh procedure and they're asleep during the whole thing they basically basically were suggesting in this video that i was you know these were little torture chambers that i was holding the birds in while they were awake uh constantly I guess is what they're implying in the video and and you know so you know just this last week I have received dozens of hostile and harassing um you know hate mail basically and some of the messages were were very threatening and and unpleasant and you know I think anytime a scientist is targeted like this you you really should think about okay well what's the worst case scenario here in terms of safety so I do have a file of all these messages, which I've had to keep just in case I need to be able to give them to the FBI. 
Yeah, and that's uh, it happened with me too. I mean, you you get to the point where you have to start looking to these kinds of resources because it the problem is is that these organizations, these national organizations, uh, their goal is to maybe not be the ones who pulled the trigger, but they're the ones who can incite someone locally to cause you grief or vandalize your lab, vandalize your house, vandalize your car, threaten your you know family or whatever. And this is what they want. And this is what is trying to do. And I don't know. And it, it's so unethical because they can stand back and say, hey, our hands are clean. We're just pointing out, you know, what's there. It, it, it also leaves you very powerless in terms of your ability to push back. And so are there ways that you've actually tried to push back a little bit yourself? Well, yeah, I mean, trying to keep my head down and, and sort of hope it would blow over. That hasn't seemed to work. Um, I've been trying that since this started at the end of May. It's now August. Yeah, it doesn't work. So <laughs> it doesn't. It, does, it, it hasn't worked for me. Maybe it would work for some people in some kinds of circumstances, but but it hasn't worked in this case. And so, you know, I'm a scientist. If I try something and it doesn't work, I don't keep trying the same thing over and over again. I do something. I do something different, right? I change my approach. Um, so in this case, you know, I've I've gotten some advice from. You know, some other folks like yourself who have had to deal with this kind of situation who've said, you know what, like, you know, you should you should feel free to say, you know, this is not true. I, I care about animals. I, you know, my work, my work matters. My work is applicable to other species. And, you know, and and I, you know, this is this is uh, this is important research. And, and it's it's not OK to to lie about someone else's research in order to, to, you know, like you said, try to, try to harass them out of science or, or get other people to, to send them hate mail and, and to potentially even, you know, threaten them. Or worse, right. Well, this is the other part or of it, worse. though. But the, 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 the conventional wisdom is, is that when you are, when you've done nothing wrong, you have to lean into it. And you can't put your head down because that's what they want. And if if you've done absolutely nothing wrong, now's the time to ramp it up. And the support you've got on the uh, March for Science website, which is where I discovered you, is phenomenal. But how how else are you planning on uh, leaning into this? And what else are you planning on doing to uh, help the situation? That, that's a great point. I, you know, part of the thing that I have been doing this week is not only just saying like, you know, last week I, I started saying, you know, no, this isn't this isn't true. This is good work. This is important work. It's ethically done. It's carefully done. Um, you know, defending myself. But I've also been trying to enlist the support of my colleagues. You know, I, I am at an early career stage still, so in some ways I'm more vulnerable uh, to this kind of attack. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, right, but I'm also I'm also very involved with uh, different kinds of scientific societies where I've presented research. Uh, you know, and and there's one scientific society where I was actually the student postdoc representative and sort of talking to my colleagues and and saying, you know, hey, you know, this is happening to me. Like, if you feel like you can do this and you're not yourself in a vulnerable vulnerable position, you know, if you could if you could support me on social media and say, hey, I know this person, you know, she does good work. She's really she's really um, moving the field forward and and she cares about animals and she cares about cons- conservation and you know if you could support me in that way if you feel comfortable doing that it would it would really mean a lot and it would it would really help people that i know and even people that i don't know right who 
who uh, have found me on social media. You know, I, I posted something on the March for Science page. A lot of people have shared what I sent them with other scientists that they know and non-scientists as well. You know, and I think in a lot of a lot of ways, um, this has been a wake-up call for me that it's really essential to communicate clearly about the importance of my work and why it is necessary to use animals to do this research. We can't expect the public to just understand why the work matters from the papers that we put out um, and, and, you know, why it, and, and to understand why it has to be done this way unless we tell them. And I think this kind of self-advocacy is pretty uncomfortable for a lot of scientists. It's actually been pretty uncomfortable for me to be in the spotlight so much this last week uh, and to be, be kind of putting myself out into the spotlight and saying, hey, like, support me. Um, but, I, you know, I, I have to say that since people have started speaking out, the amount of hate mail that I've been receiving has actually dramatically decreased. So it does seem to be having, uh, it does seem to be helping. And I, I need to do a better job you know, through my, my website, and I think it would be great for me to have the chance to speak more to journalists and, you know, to be on podcasts like yours, to, to talk about, you know, why what I do is important and and why it's necessary to use animals for this kind of research, but, but why, you know, I think it is justified for the importance of the questions that, that we're trying to address. That's really important. What we're talking about here today is like a like a freaking onion. I could go on all day about this. What you've described in terms of the scientist side is, yes, we need to be more transparent. We need to be super clear about what we do. We need to talk about all of its potentially pointy edges. That's our job. But this science advocate community or the science enthusiast community, the people who are out there who um, who can follow us on Twitter and can defend us so that we don't have to defend ourselves. Back when this happened to me, um, a number of people stepped into it, and it was um, Allison Van Enenem, Stephen Novella, David Gorski, um, Cybabe, uh, Yvette Diatraman. Um Many people were stepping into this. My boss was writing things on uh, that were getting online. Um, David Kroll, a whole bunch of people. But it still wasn't a very... L- huge effort at the time since then if somebody posts something negative about me on my professional facebook page or anywhere on twitter there are a thousand people who get in and fix it before i ever see it right yeah and and so this kind of thing that i i gently call the nerd shield is um really what we have to fortify for each other and really what i wanted this podcast to be about today would be to put you in a spotlight and um you know yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry I get like really emotional about this. I was in your shoes, and it, it was literally some of the darkest times of my life, and <clears throat> sorry, if I can make this a little better here, then we're doing the right thing. And what I want to do is give you a spotlight to have the folks who are out there who see what you're going through and the fact that no scientist should ever have to get hate mail for doing work that they do. No scientist should ever have to feel personally threatened, see themselves in videos, uh, see themselves on the front page of the Sunday New York Times. This has to stop. 
And the way it's going to stop is when we take cases like yours and we give them the most broad, visible attention that they need to have. We need to shine the light on this thing. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm especially sensitive to this with you because your early career. And this could have negative effects just because no matter how good your work is, people may say, well, we don't want to hire a lightning rod here. We don't need you know, burning down our building, you know, this is why I wanted you on the podcast and I want everybody listening to follow you, to learn the story, to share the story and let's point out for the bullies they are. And so if people are going to follow you, where do they, do you have, can you please pass along your Twitter information? Yeah, absolutely. My uh, scientific Twitter account is at C as in Christine, underscore latin my last name which is l-a-t-t-i-n it's like the language but with an extra t <laughs> and uh yeah you sorry about my little breakdown there but i mean no, I, it's okay. I, this I, is, this is really emotional i mean this has been like one of the worst summers of my life i will tell you this this i go back two years and i was um i got invited to a really nice talk in um montreal and I was looking forward to it and looking forward to it. And it came right after the New York Times article. And Aww. I was so exhausted and so destroyed. And just, I wanted to quit science myself. I was done. And um, the stuff I was reading about myself daily online and the pictures that were altered and the memes that were going around. And I sat in an airplane that they said, oh, we're having some mechanical problem. We're not going to take off um, you know, on time. And I remember sitting there thinking, if this plane were to take off and crash, I would be okay with that. And, I mean, it was that bad. I, I, was, I really was done. But this is what it does to you. And I don't want anyone to go through that. And especially a scientist who's just doing what she was supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, you and then, you know, but Gorski and, uh, you know, everybody who's been going through this. You know, we we need to have a stronger response, and it isn't just going to Washington and marching with a sign for a day. It has to be a sustained uh, standing up against those that are bullying scientists, and, and that's, that's that's my two cents. <laughs> that's I mean, that's actually what I've been hearing a lot from, from different people. You know, I talked to somebody uh, from the organization, speaking of research in the UK, and they said, you know, because of that kind of a network of, you know, and, and I think also universities and scientists realizing that a big part of their job is to be really clear about the benefits of animal research and the necessity of animal research and, and have, you know, pages on their websites talking about all this kinds of stuff and, and, and also mobilizing these networks of people, like you said, like the nerd shield and other scientists and whatnot you know, at this point, he said that there's actually very little harassment of scientists who do animal research in the UK at this point. And, and he thinks he credits it to those kinds of efforts. So, I mean, I think in some, some cases you can see that as a success story and, and see a path, a see a path forward, I think, for, for us in this country. Well, are you worried about how this could affect your future career? Yeah, I mean, of course I am, right? It's, it's, um, you want people to know about your research, but you don't want them to know about your research in this kind of a way. So, so that, you know, that's, and, and, and I don't, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that I am a junior researcher and, and maybe particularly vulnerable because of that. 
you know, it's, it's, it's hard enough. It's hard enough to, to get an academic job, you know, as a, as a graduate student or a postdoc without having something negative about you out there. Um, even if it's not true, even if it's, you know, really misguided and, 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 yeah, and it, it, it definitely worries me. Um, you know, I, I think that the work I'm doing is is really, I would say, not just important, but, you know, with some of the imaging work, like, no one has ever done any of this kind of stuff. You know, looking at dopamine receptors in the brains of a wild animal, like, no one has ever done that before. You know, I, I think it's really groundbreaking work, and I hope that someone can can see the importance of what I'm doing and, and, the, and the novelty and the innovation of it and and really say you know what this is this is great and and we don't we don't care about some of this this negative attention she's gotten and you know and also i do think it's potentially an opportunity for me to, to do better about communicating about my own research and about you know animal research in general right and and, and have an opportunity to speak to my community you know the, uh, other people doing work in birds um for other kinds of of, of questions and to say to them, like, listen, like nobody, nobody is, is immune to this kind of attack. Like, unless you get out there and you really make communicating about this a priority, um, you're vulnerable to being attacked by, by extremists. Yeah. And that's, it's sad. And, but that's where we are. And we're, that's why this idea of communication is bigger than it's ever been and necessary. And, I think that uh, I, my hope for you is that this kind of podcast exposure, I get a few listeners and then uh, building on this to get you onto um, the, the the center stage here about not just your research, but, you know, which I think if I could hire you, I'd hire you in a heartbeat because anybody uh-huh. who can survive this can survive the rejection of a grant proposal, you know. So yeah. you, I, I can tell a lot about you by your attitude and the way in which you're handling this. Um you're the kind of person I want on my team. Um, but I, I want people to share the story to also show how the how these organizations do harass and bully scientists. Um, it still happens, and it's still very prevalent. Yeah, and, and it's a shame in a lot of ways because, you know, as we were saying before, like the real threats, there are, there are a lot of real threats to, to wild animal populations and wild songbirds. And, you know, there could potentially be common ground for working together with animal welfare and animal rights organizations on on certain kinds of issues like you know how can we make buildings out of glass that birds can see so that they don't hit the window and die right when they're migrating through cities or or flying around urban areas where they live like that could be potential common ground for you know animal animal rights groups to work together with scientists and instead of being able to sort of find that common ground and work together on those kinds of issues um, you know, there's, they, it seems like a group like has, has taken a really antagonistic approach. And instead of seeing us as allies, they see us as adversaries. And I think that's a real shame. Yeah, it's a supreme irony here, because at the end of the day, you and P- it want what's best for animals, <laughs> just are going at it in two very different ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that they, you know, I, 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 I think that they are totally going about it the wrong way and um this is this is not this is not the approach they should take but i do think that you know they think that they're doing the right thing 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I guess, right. I think, I think they, I think they think that they're helping animals. Um, and, and, you know, I think that I'm helping animals. So yeah, I mean, it would be great if we could, if we could find common ground instead of, um, having, you know, yeah, being a- attacked by them. So Dr. Christine Latin, uh, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story and everything. And one other thing I could throw in is, you know, don't hesitate to talk to professionals um, in the area of how you deal with the crisis, not in terms of communication or anything professionally, but just how you get through this yourself. Um, even if you're handling it just fine, talk to, you know, I still talk to people about how do I get through this? And uh, you can tell I still, it weighs on me pretty heavy um, still, um, even two years later. Um, but so if people wanted to learn more about you, you have a really nice website that describes the research and more about you. Could, where, where do we find that? Uh, yeah, you can um, learn more about my research and actually read all of my publications that are on uh, my website, which is www.christinelatin.com. So Christine is with a C-H, um, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, and then Latin is L-A-T-T-I-N. That's sort of a work in progress, too, you know, as I figure out the best way to communicate what I'm doing, both to the public as well as to my scientific colleagues. Right now, the website is very much oriented towards kind of a, a, a general public audience because I'm getting a lot of attention from, from non-scientists right now uh, that has been sort of, you know, thrust upon me. Um, and and uh, I think at some point that might end up on a page on my website, which might be called something like how and why, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, how and why animals uh, are used in my work or frequently asked questions or, you know, why animal research or something like that. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the kind of specifics about certain kinds of studies that I've done in the past um, might end up in there. But, um, you know, I'm definitely going to make sure that I keep a big part of my website um, very accessible and very clear about you know why and how um, how sparrows have been have been um, used in my research. No, very good. You know, and, and, and I'm going to make a bold prediction. I think that when we look back on this in five years, I think you're going to see that this turned into a springboard for your career and for your visibility as a scientist. Um, you, I'm amazed at your publication record and your productivity so early in your career. And, uh, you know, admirable what you're doing and uh, how you're holding up through this whole thing um, is, is, is great. So I think you're going to be just fine. I can't wait to talk to you in a, in a <laughs> or see you at a conference in five years when I go clean out the protesters and then we sit down and have a coffee <laughs> and find cool. out everything's just fine. <laughs> oh, that's, that's very nice of you to say. No, I, I really believe it. Well, thank you very much for joining me. And um, uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Give us a review on iTunes. Give us a few stars. Um, you know, <laughs> and I apologize for the breakdown on this one, but I, you know, this this means a lot to me. Um, this, you know, if I get in the long run, this is how I'm going to end up. I probably, I don't know. I, it's probably the most important thing I do is is get involved in standing up for the other scientists because this is this is nuts all right that's it for the podcast thank you very much thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast please send your suggestions for guests comments 
or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.